Hello and welcome to Think Business Futures. I'm your host, Stefan Postuma, coming to you from two SER studios in Sydney on the Gadigal land of the Eora Nation. Broadcast right around Australia on the Community Radio Network and around the world, wherever you get your podcasts. Each week, we take a closer look at the business issues making up the news. This program is made possible by the assistance of the UTS Business School. It's impossible to ignore the dramatic increase in recent years of businesses incorporating sustainability into what they do. Whether it be emissions, ethical supply chains or social equity, more and more we see a sustainable tinge to the way companies operate. But what does it really mean to contribute to sustainable development in business? What's the place of business in addressing issues like the climate crisis? And where do things like legislation, transparency and consumer responsibility intersect? Today on the show, we're discussing sustainable business. I'm joined in the studio by Melissa Edwards, Director of the Executive MBA Program at the UTS Business School, and by Tim Williams, Lecturer at the Management Discipline Group at the UTS Business School. Melissa, Tim, welcome to Think Business Futures. Thanks for having us. Yeah, good morning. Yeah. Okay, now I'm going to start with you, Melissa. Let's get straight to it. What does sustainability work mean in the context of your work? Oh, good question. So, um, well, I work in a business school. I'm an academic. Um, and I guess the areas of my work, I do research, teaching, and also um, engagement or you know, service to the university and the broader community. So for me, sustainability in my work means that in all aspects of that work, uh, social and environmental ways of thinking about the work that we're doing are at the kind of forefront of the decisions that mm. we make. Okay. And Tim, do you want to expand on that a little bit? Like, What does the work that you do and sort of researching sustainability of work mean? What do people think these days when they think about sustainability in business and sustainability in work? I think it's interesting that when we think about how sustainability is practiced within organisations, that really is our focus. And so there's been a lot of focus in terms of the processes and practices and tools and technologies that have become uh, incorporated into business practice over the last couple of decades. That's part of the solution. But increasingly, what we're interested in is looking at really at those dynamics between what people really do on a daily basis, be they be in charge of the sustainability agenda, be they be a chief sustainability officer, which is a a new category that's kind of emerged over the last uh, couple of decades. Indeed, be they be people um, who work in sustainability departments and so on. But more broadly, it's like, what do people do really on a daily basis in terms of prosecuting and uh, working towards incorporating social and ecological issues into business practices. Melissa, tell us a bit about this change. You just mentioned, Tim, a couple of decades. Mm. Melissa, tell us a bit about how the landscape has changed. Yeah, okay. So we we can go right back into Mm. the roots of the social and environmental movements, but I'd probably take as a starting point, you know, the United Nations and the Brundtland Commission, uh, where there was this kind of global definition of what do we mean by uh, sustainability or sustainable development. And that was really about making sure that the actions that we take today and the things that we do, the way we live our lives, don't draw down on the needs of future generations to be able to live their lives, you know, in a similar or better manner. Um, And so in that sense, we need to make sure that, you know, all the resources and materials that we're taking can be replenished or put back in some way so that future generations can benefit from them. And that the society and the communities that we live in, we're not drawing down on people, you know, overworking them, (laughs) um, making sure that the livelihoods that they have then in the way that they live in the future are also better than the ones that we have today. Mm, okay. So and how terms. long ago? How long ago was were these conventions that you talk about? Eighties oh, and nineties. Yeah. Right. 90s, yeah. So. Okay. So Tim, let's bring it closer to the present. What's changed? I mean, 
you you mentioned positions like chief sustainability officers and things like that. I think you know it's, it is within the last five years that I that that was on my radar that companies would employ people in such positions. What shifted in more recent times? I think it's just growing awareness of the rising prominence of social and ecological issues in that external landscape for organisations. You know, organisations are always concerned about the changing landscape, for example, through a risk lens or through a strategy lens. I think it's fair to say that issues like climate change, COVID obviously has really accelerated all this thinking the last couple of, the last couple of years, has really brought social and ecological issues kind of centre stage in terms of being priorities for uh, the C-suite, for executives, but also for boards as well. So just as we have the rise of the uh, chief sustainability officer and also organised central functions and so on, trying to make sense of this complex agenda. Also, we have special board committees and so uh, similarly kind of so providing new governance, new oversight, recognition that some of these issues really are centre stage. And, and we see that in numerous surveys of executive CEOs and also board members in terms of how this issue really is a priority for them. The challenge is, is its complexity and making sense of it and knowing how to act. That really is kind of the question. And we're still comparatively at an early stage, I think, in terms of seeing how organisations are responding substantively to this really complex dynamic. Okay. Let's talk about the drivers of this shift, Melissa, because Things that drive corporations, their incentives and their motives in general, I mean, the first thing that people note is the bottom line and is businesses being profitable. Other things that we can look to are shareholder activism. We can look to things like risk for that company themselves and and ways to inbuild sustainable or social things into their policies and their systems for the benefit of the company. We can talk about legislation. But In terms of these corporations and these businesses, what do you think has been driving them? Is it a bottom line issue or is it a moral imperative for them and a a shift of priorities towards doing better for the planet and society? Is it a mixture of both? Where are we? Yeah, look, and I wish there was a simple answer, right? And I think that's why we stay in this game because it's so intriguing and there are so many different reasons why companies are taking action. So I'd say it's a mix of all of these and there's lots of factors coming together at the moment that are just making a kind of really nice recipe for kind of propelling that movement forward in terms of companies making commitments to uh, what it is they're going to do, for example, in terms of net zero commitments and the political environment at the moment in Australia has sort of made a recent turn. So we we can expect to see more action happening in this space. But so, yeah, I wouldn't say that there's any one particular answer, but certainly what we've seen in most recent times, I would say, is is a closing in between the realisation of what, you know, what you're inferring to. There's this idea that, okay, we need financial sustainability. You need to ensure that you've got a a consistent model that enables you to pay the bills and make sure (laughs) that people are keeping their jobs and that you can procure the materials and resources you need in order to create whatever the service or good it is that you're having. That's the core function of a business or any kind of organisation. And I think the realisation, though, of things like material scarcity, disruptions that we're seeing in global supply chains, and that interconnection between the dependency that we have in order to provide that good or service and these problems that were were traditionally maybe classified as externalities is closing in. Um, Mm. And so I think that's a a kind of real material risk that uh, is um, apparent to the way that people are making decisions now that probably wasn't there, you know, a decade ago. Okay. Tim, do you have anything to add to that? Because it's an interesting conversation to have around where these motivations lie. I, I agree. And I think really what is so interesting and the complexity here is that we have these interwoven moral and business case arguments, I think, and that can be hard to unpick sometimes. 
there are these big dri- big drivers, mega trends. There are certainly changes in terms of customer expectations, uh, and there are of course these big issues like climate change, biodiversity loss, and so on that really are becoming more and more proximal in terms of the risk to businesses. But then there are these kind of closer drivers, such as investor pressure, which are kind of really kind of driving uh, driving thinking uh, and practice. Also, I think it's a mistake to kind of think about organisations as these sort of monoliths, if you like. They're, they're kind of social systems, and they're complex social systems. And so we can't kind of generalise in terms of really what are the drivers, how are they impacting, where are the opportunities for agency for people to kind of act differently, think differently, and so on. So it could be a bottom-up change, it could be a change in executive leadership and so on, a new board and so on, mm-hmm. uh, new mindsets. But this is the complexity. This is what the, the difficulty in terms of how organisations are forced to kind of make sense of this, confronted with this changing landscape, and then think through, well, what is the imperative for them? What, what should they do? How should they act? Mm. Melissa, let's talk about some of the organisations that are leading the way in this space and how they both respond to these different drivers and also are addressing some of these issues. Yeah, look, I've been privy to recent conversations where um, business leaders are actually calling for to the point that you raised earlier about where does it come from, you know, regulatory change um, around, you know, things like carbon. um, And that's to set a kind of a platform from which we can then ensure that that is costed properly into the productions of goods and services because people are really concerned about wanting to act on climate. And that's, you know, that's the kind of uncommon behaviour that you might expect to see from leaders in the business community. And I'd take that as an example of really proactively wanting to see us make changes. But I guess if we were to just use probably more of a concrete example, but not naming specific companies, if your core input into the thing that you're making is, for example, uh, water or you need trees, you have an interest in ensuring that that critical resource that you need for the product or service that you're providing for people is there in five or 10 years time. So when we're kind of at a a critical turning point um, with, you know, this idea of we're crossing these thresholds, we've got biodiversity crisis, there is a need then for companies to say, well, we have to be involved in actions that restore the habitats and the natural environment so that we can continue to provide this good or service in the long term. So people might look at that and say, oh, well, isn't that vested interest? Okay, you've got a commercial interest there. You know, you want to keep on selling a product. But I would say that most people listening to this program, even if you're not a business person, but you're a consumer, you also want those products and services as well. So we all benefit. And so it's kind of like this idea that whatever is central to the thing that we need, we have to be putting back in. And that goes back to that definition I gave at the beginning from you know the early ways of thinking about sustainability. Tim, is there something to unpack in terms of the vested interest of companies to ensure the sustainability of the inputs that ensure their, their sustainability as a company our willingness as consumers to buy these products and the narrative created by these companies that perhaps what they're doing is actually better for the is good for the planet and let's just not mention the part that this ensures we stay profitable indeed again there's plenty of complexity to unpack and i think we're kind of confronted really with needing to understand the limits of our of our current a capitalist system, really, and, and systems of production and consumption that has to be part of the part of the mix. And so, it's interesting to see that that sort of change in narrative beyond this idea of enlightened self-interest, if you like, to to again. So, where's this coming from? But we are seeing narratives and discourses around net positive, for example, the idea of business leaders questioning: Is the world 
better off or not because of the existence of our corporation and so on. It's, it raises really interesting questions, I think. Mm. But yeah, there are some really big, uh, the, the breaching of planetary boundaries. I mean, ultimately, these are questions that either you kind of accept the science or you don't. And, and if you do, the status quo is, is no longer sustainable. We need to do things differently. So that, that of course, and that, and there, are, there are always arguments around around the business case and so on and resource scarcity and so on and it comes down to this dynamic between the economic ecological and and social goals and imperatives and how organizations kind of make sense of that dynamic and how they kind of prioritize those those impacts and goals uh, this is this is the challenge i think here mm-hmm. there's no kind of one way we're seeing a spectrum of responses from not doing very much to organizations being much more on the on the front foot now in terms of really embracing this idea of making a positive contribution Okay, we'll, we'll get to more of that a little bit later. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Think Business Futures here on 2SER 107.3. I'm Steph Postuma, your host. I'm joined in the studio by Melissa Edwards and Tim Williams from the UTS Business School, and we're talking about sustainable business. Melissa, tell us about what sustainable business means these days, because there's a huge landscape out there of, of ways that businesses are addressing these. How do we sort of decipher which businesses are on the front foot, as you mentioned, Tim, and those that are just keeping up with legislation and consumer demand? Yeah, I mean, there are a couple of different ways I could answer that question, even which goes to the point of saying there is no one way for us to define Mm. sustainable business, and that's part of the problem, right? So how do you navigate that complexity? But there are rating schemes, there are uh, framework, evaluation frameworks that are audited by entities outside the company, so they're externally validated, that can help a a particular company demonstrate the kind of positive and negative impacts that they're having and giving a kind of overall uh, weighting of that company. Um, So these things do exist. There are certification schemes as well, you know, a number of different competing certification schemes that have different ways of thinking about what a sustainable business is. But all of them have that same core element, that it's there are some social and environmental and economic and also the governance, the way that we go about doing business is uh, transparent and we want to be accountable for the activities that we have across those range of activities. I think there are a couple of other more maybe simple rules of thumb that you might consider, um, Mm. you know, if you were a, a customer. It's about thinking... Where is the product made? Are there parts of the product that are single use that I'm, uh, you know, plastic, for example? You know, are there artificial or sort of toxic elements to this product or service? Are there obvious certifications on the product that, you know, indicate that it has been certified in some way? Tim, if we think about the businesses that are on the front foot that are really at the cutting edge of building sustainability, whether it be environmental, economic or social, into their their models, are there commonalities between some of the methods they're applying to, to do this? I think so. So again, in the context of that kind of spectrum of organisational responses, at that more progressive spectrum, we can begin to see some commonalities in terms of the, the processes and practices. Essentially, I think, in the current current context, it largely is encapsulated by a so-called uh, strategic perspective, if you like, which really means using the lens of strategy, thinking about risk and opportunity, thinking about potentially experimenting with, with new business models, going beyond doing less bad to thinking about having, uh, having a positive impact in, 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 in a concrete way. But certainly in terms of concrete activities such as having governance oversight of this whole agenda, this complex agenda, uh, having it reflected in incentive uh, schemes and programs, for example. Certainly having executive oversight of it, perhaps through a chief sustainability officer. 
Why do you want that? Because it's a burgeoning complex agenda which requires focus and attention. Reporting on sustainability impacts, as, uh, as Mel has alluded to, very important. Objective setting and so on. So there's a whole bunch of processes and practices. Mindsets, of course, are in there as, as well, a bit less visible. The broader question, of course, is whether all of this is really kind of adding up to be sufficient in the face of the challenge that we collectively face with sustainability as that uh, global challenge and imperative. And that really is kind of the next agenda, I think, in terms of ensuring well done organisations, but are what you're doing, is it really rolling up into anything substantive mm. at that global level? And that's something more of a, that's, I think, perhaps the frontier in terms of where, where, where we're at currently. Melissa, do you think that there needs to be more accountability and transparency in the space of businesses reporting on how they address these sustainability issues and potentially an overarching system of accreditation or reporting that is easily accessible by the public in order for them to be able to make sustainability decisions around their consumption that is easy for them and that and that fits with the way they choose to live. Uh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the ultimate aim, right? Um, not that that should be the only thing, though. Of course, because then you know you're kind of setting a benchmark there, aren't you? And then you still there might be still some companies that want to then exceed that benchmark for certain reasons. But having that kind of, if you think of it in terms of, I always like to say to people, well, you know, we have these kind of set thinking around companies having to report on, for example, the fat in a product or, you know, the carbohydrates or, you know, what's inside that product. And we're very used to this as customers if we want to look for it, looking at a label on a product and being able to see that. So the kind of thing you're talking about would be, you know, that ultimate aim, right? So you could look at a product and see the carbon. Then you can make a choice. If you want a low-carbon product, you can see that and you've got a way of comparing that. You could likewise do the same thing in terms of other social factors, like you know, there's legislation now around human rights in the supply chain. You could have some kind of way of making that more publicly transparent so that people understand and can interpret that in the way that they're thinking about what companies are doing. And, and we know that in other areas of the world, there is some uh, legislation around mandating that type of reporting from companies, but the labelling piece is probably a little bit further away. So reporting mandating is one thing, and that's great, but the con- into the consumer piece is where we need an extra piece of another layer, which is a little bit more difficult to potentially achieve. Mm. <laughs> Thoughts on that, Tim? Yeah, it's, it's a real challenge. I would say that we're still in the Wild West in terms of certification and, and ranking and, and labelling mm. schemes. There are a plethora of, of such initiatives and programmes globally. And, and indeed, there are kind of work underfoot to endeavour to, con- to consolidate some of them. But it's still a real challenge. I think we're putting a big... We're giving you know, consumers a real challenge here in terms of trying to make sense of all of this. So like in the classroom, I ask my students to... To, to look at real-life organisations and to kind of really drill down into the detail uh, to make sense themselves. And, and frequently, they are required to kind of go beyond their preconceptions about an organisation. And, and they, they recognise the complexity of all of this. It's really difficult. And that's, that's students, you know, who, who are studying subjects in, in this area. I think for consumers, it's a really big deal. So, yes, of course, we are, uh, certainly advocate for uh, more transparency in this area, but maybe we're just asking too much of consumers. Maybe it's the organisations that should be doing this on behalf of the consumers. Mm. So mm. maybe it's an opportunity for, for more regulation. You know, it's the, it's the boogie bear, right, that no one, no, one, no one wants to talk about. But I think there's scope for it, ultimately. Mm. Uh, you know, and, and also, at the point, um, can we kind of comply to greatness, you know, to, uh, to Mal's point around uh, certification schemes and so on? It's, it's kind of raising, it raises the bar, okay, but is it really raising it enough? 
And of course, the argument is always that it suppresses um, the incentive to kind of go beyond that. Yeah, exactly. And it's dynamic, right? So it's changing as well. The benchmark itself may have to move. And this, what we're talking about, this agenda, this spectrum of sustainability issues is itself dynamic. Mm. For example, modern slavery is an issue that many of us wouldn't have really thought about 20 years ago. And it's emerged as an issue in global supply chains. It's attracted attention. And, and now, indeed, it's, it's legislated in, in Australia and, and other jurisdictions. The point being that this is not a static agenda. That's, that's part of the challenge. Do you think that it will suppress corporate willingness to go above benchmarks and things like that if there were a system in place whereby the consumer can easily differentiate where and how companies are contributing to sustainability? I mean... When I look at buying a washing machine, the star rating affects my decision-making. In terms of suppression, is it not just in the interests of companies to have the highest number possible on whatever index we create because that creates consumer demand? Melissa? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I would agree with what you've just said. Um, but I think to the point that with some aspects of sustainability, the benchmark itself is moving and that's why it's a little bit complicated mm. or difficult. And also it's sometimes contextual. And you think about you know, Australia as an example. You know, we went from severe drought to flooding. Yeah. And so the kind of criticality of certain aspects of sustainability, the issues that we're trying to address, will change over time. All right. I think um, this is all sort of bringing us to the conversation around how much of a difference can business make. And we've kind of brush past it as well, which is the role of legislation. Tim, give us your thoughts on how much of a difference can corporations make and at what point does legislation need to play a role if we are to address these issues in a way that is meaningful considering the immediacy of specifically climate change? I'm bound to say that I think there is always a role for regulation. I mean, the arguments, we've seen them play out in Australia and elsewhere. The arguments we hear from business are around potentially suppressing the opportunity for voluntary action and so on. But nonetheless, we, we've seen regulation, and again, across this very broad spectrum of issues and areas of impact in the EU in particular, I'd say, other jurisdictions and Scandinavia as well, in terms of many different areas of sustainability practice. So in my mind, there's absolutely a, a role for regulation. But the question is, typically regulation lags. It, it lags corporate behaviour, it lags stakeholder expectations and so on. And I don't think we can necessarily always look to regulation to kind of similarly be on the front foot. Mm. Melissa, any thoughts? I think one interesting part of this discussion is the level playing field and how companies may be willing and wanting to be on the front foot and push the boundaries of what they can do in terms of their sustainability policy, but they don't want to put themselves at a competitive disadvantage. And potentially there's many CEOs out there who would want more regulation to ensure a level playing field. Where do you see it? Yeah, I mean, like if we take a recent example of what's happened here in this country in terms of the political sentiment around climate, uh, we've definitely seen a shift happening in the recent election and we can expect, as Tim said, and there's always this lag, that there might be some big legislative changes perhaps that happen in Australia in the coming years. But we know that the business community were calling for this action well before that change in the political landscape happened here in this country. And whether that was driven by their own self-interest or for, for some of them, it might have been to do with global companies with their operations in Australia. They had um, stricter regulations and things that they were doing in their home country, perhaps, and then, you know, needing to try to 
move the dial on what was happening here in Australia. So I think it's hard to say that there's a, a sweet spot and I, I would just raise that there's a complexity here. But I think, and I, if I go back to the point that business leaders who really understand that the nature of their business is reliant on ensuring that they're operating in communities where people are healthy and their well-being is looked after and extracting from an environment in order to create the products and services that they need to sustain themselves they're closer to that kind of edge of knowing what it is that they need to do. So the kind of pushing the barrel in terms of innovating in order to ensure that they are not putting that future state at risk is actually in the interests of companies. Tim, let's talk about where this might go. Where does this get us to in the context of a public that's demanding more environmental ethos amongst these companies, as well as the immediacy of climate change? Because Not only do we have businesses that play a role in this space now, but we have a lot of companies and people that are sort of challenging this in the social enterprise space or in the not-for-profit space that are providing alternatives that don't have a profit bottom line. So where do you see it moving forward? How do you see things changing considering the progress of the last, you know, five years we'll even talk about in the short term? Indeed, well, uh, absolutely. So the, the, the question of alternative business models and governance structures such as social enterprises and so on is, is a very interesting one and, and potentially we're seeing, I think, some convergence between uh, some, of these, some of these ideas. As I said earlier, the idea of going beyond doing this bad to, being, to having a net positive effect, uh, I think, has to be the future. And mm. I think we're at the stage now, finally, when we can begin to realistically um, it, it make that claim that organisations can actually have an understanding of their of their impacts, notwithstanding the extent to which it kind of rolls up, as I said, at that, at that global level. Um, but to the idea of regenerative, restorative, reparative business, I think is an idea that organisations, some organisations, are really kind of embracing now. Mm. Okay. Is there anything you want to finish on, Melissa? Well, I'm just thinking about the question you asked, right? And I, I would say that people are part of the solution despite the type of organisation that we're working in. And I feel like we're coming to a point in a kind of collective way, a collective sense of the current state of crisis that we're living in. Um, And I would say to your point about business in particular, I mean, you think about decarbonisation and the um, state government plans to decarbonise within this decade. Mm. That's a huge problem to solve, but it's also a massive opportunity. And so I think people and their creative impetus to be able to address these problems, business acts as an avenue to incentivise that because, you know, you talk about generating profits or creating revenue. It's the way in which that is then captured and put back into the thinking around the product or service that you're creating that differs between those types of enterprises. But that doesn't necessarily say that, you know, one is better than the other, but that there needs to be a collective movement now forward in terms of addressing these problems and business is part of the solution, just like non-profit organisations or social enterprises. Mm, Okay. Unfortunately, that's all we've got time for. And I think that that's a a great way to finish it. Let's, uh, I mean... It's an intriguing space that that you both occupy and it must be fascinating to see these young students come through with their ambitions and and being the people that are going to lead these changes into the future. So, yeah, we're in an interesting place and, uh, you know, it'll be fascinating to see what's next. Melissa, Tim, thank you so much for joining me here on Think Business Futures. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Think Business Futures. Thank you to my guests, Melissa Edwards and Tim Williams. You can listen and share this chat wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe to get Think Business Futures in your feed each week. And please support the show by leaving a review. 
I'm your host, Stefan Postuma, and I'll see you again somewhere in the world of business next week.